0: Everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 132. Are we all Martians? Leichhardt arrived in 1842, Australia had been thoroughly explored only along its southern fringes. There were no great river systems as in North and South America to lead explorers into the dry, harsh interior. Few men were less prepared than Leichhardt to reconnoitre this wilderness. The dreamy son of a Prussian farmer... He had studied at the universities of Göttingen and Berlin, aiming to be a doctor. There is no record that he succeeded. In October 1840, he deserted from the army and fled to Sydney. From the coolinterestingstuff.com website. The unexplained disappearance of Ludwig Leichhardt. Leichhardt was known for his eccentric ways. He wore a Chinese coolie hat and carried a sword because he was said to be terrified of firearms. His eyesight was as bad as his sense of direction. Nevertheless, he yearned to be the first to explore the land route from south to north along Australia's Great Dividing Range, from Sydney to Port Essington, a settlement near the continent's northern tip. He assembled a ragtag crew and convinced well to do Australians to finance the trek. Ill equipped, his troop of eight set off from the fertile region known as the Darling Downs in September 1844. Never straying more than ten miles from running water they had not brought enough canteens the group reached the eastern edge of the Gulf of Carpentaria in June 1845. There, naturalist John Gilbert was killed in an Aboriginal attack, and two other men were wounded. The surviving band travelled along the edge of the gulf, and six months later stumbled into Port Essington. They returned by sea to Sydney, where they had been given up for dead. The expedition made Leichhardt the most famous man in Australia. Citizens took up collections for him, and foreign geographical societies bestowed medals. The King of Prussia pardoned him for desertion. All of that stimulated Leichhardt to plan an even more spectacular journey. This time he would start once more from the Darling Downs, head north again for Carpentaria, then strike west all the way across the desert. His route would take him through hostile tribal lands and across some of the world's most forbidding deserts. Once again he recruited a group of eight followers, and convinced Bacchus to provide him with supplies. Carrying two years' supplies, and accompanied by a herd of sheep, goats and cattle, he set out in December 1846, the hottest time of the year. Eight months later, he was back. His party had wandered aimlessly and lost their livestock. According to one account, Leichhardt had given strange commands... Telling his followers, for example, to cook game with the entrails left in, which led to bouts of sickness. When his own supplies ran low, he filched from others. Eventually, they gave up in disgust and despair. Despite this fiasco, Leichhardt was able to find backers for another expedition. In April 1848, he set forth with six mates, fifty head of cattle, twenty mules, and seven horses. Somewhere on their journey, the entire party, man and beast, disappeared without a trace. Rumours about Leichhardt's fate continued to crop up for years. It was said that he had been killed by Aborigines or drowned in flash floods. There were tales of a wild white man in the bush living with natives, possibly a survivor of the lost expedition. At least two of Leichhardt's camps were discovered, and at various places in the interior, trees were found marked with a mysterious L. In 1880, the Sydney Bulletin coined the term Franklin of Australian Exploration, ranked Leichhardt's final foray with Sir John Franklin's ill-fated Arctic probe. Leichhardt himself had long since been embedded in official Australian law. Plaques marked various sites along his first expeditionary trail. In the state of Queensland, where most of his early exploring took place, a mountain range and a river were named after him. In Sydney, a suburb earned the same distinction, and his surname identifies 20 varieties of Australian plants. In 1938, an expedition headed by the President of the Royal Geographic Society of South Australia went to the edge of the Simpson Desert, deep into the centre of the country drawn by rumours that seven or eight skeletons were lying there. The party found only unidentifiable fragments of bone and teeth and two coins, a half-sovereign and a Maundy threepence, both minted before the doomed expedition left Sydney. person's heart and brain have stopped ticking, and their respiratory and circulatory systems grind to a halt, it's time to declare death. The body has shut down, there is no more life. Or is there? A pair of papers published this week discuss evidence that certain parts of the body are still firing even days after the rest have stopped functioning. And it could change the way we think about organ transplants and time of death. From the sciencealert.com website. Hundreds of genes spring to life up to four days after death, scientists find. And this is written by Beck Crew. Led by microbiologist Peter Noble, a team from the University of Washington has been investigating the gene activity in deceased mice and zebrafish prompted by previous research that identified a handful of genes in human cadavers that were active more than 12 hours after death. The researchers ended up identifying more than 1,000 genes that were still functioning even days after death. But it wasn't likely they were taking a bit longer to sputter out than the rest of the body. They actually increased their activity. In mice, 515 genes were seen kicking into gear and were functioning at full capacity up to 24 hours after death. In the zebrafish, 548 genes retained their function for four whole days after the animals had died, before showing any signs of winding down. The team figured this out by measuring the fluctuating levels of messenger RNA mRNA, present in the mice and zebrafish as they died, and up to 96 hours afterwards. mRNA is kind of like a blueprint. It tells our genes which proteins need to be produced by which cells. So if there's more mRNA in a cell, that means more genes are currently active. What's maybe even stranger than that is the fact that these post-mortem genes weren't just any genes. They were the kind of genes that ramp up during emergencies. As Mitch Leslie reports for Science Magazine, we're talking about tasks like stimulating inflammation, firing up the immune system, and counteracting stress. Some of the genes they identified usually switch on to help form an embryo, and then are never heard of again, except after death apparently. What's jaw-dropping? is that developmental genes are turned on after death, Noble told Leslie, It's not all beneficial genes, though. The team also found that certain genes that promote cancer growth also sparked after death in these animals, prompting the researchers to suggest that in a newly deceased corpse, the body reverts to the cellular conditions of a rapidly developing embryo. Maybe building a new body... And trying desperately to reanimate a dead body are pretty much the same thing to the hundreds of zombie genes. Though these hard working genes will never be strong enough to actually get the job done and bring a dead mouse, zebrafish, or human back to life, understanding what they're doing and why could have a massive impact on patients living with transplants. Studies have found that organ transplant recipients, have a much higher risk of developing 32 different types of cancer, including non-Hodgkin lymphoma and kidney cancer and liver cancer, and doctors have been struggling to mitigate this. While transplantation is a life-saving therapy for patients with end-stage organ disease, it also puts recipients at an increased risk of developing cancer, in part because of medications administered to suppress the immune system and prevent rejection of the organ says Eric A. Engels of the U.S. National Institutes of Health's National Cancer Institute. The cancer risk among transplant recipients resembles that of people with HIV infection, whose risk is elevated for infection-related cancers due to immunosuppression. The crazy amounts of immune-suppressing drugs transplant recipients have to take to make sure their body doesn't reject the organ could partly explain the heightened risk of cancer, But active post-mortem genes in the organ could also be at play, Noble told Science Magazine. The papers have been published on a pre-print website, and we need to stress that they have not yet been peer-reviewed. And if you visit the show notes, there's actually a link to these if you'd like to read them. By publishing them online, Noble and his team are inviting researchers to get in early and critique their work before it's submitted to a journal, which is awesome but it means until these results are independently verified, we need to remain sceptical. This is especially pertinent, seeing as familiar findings still need to be achieved in humans, not just lab animals. But none of us would argue that we've got death even remotely figured out. So this could be the beginning of a whole new way of defining what it means for us to be alive, dead and not quite done. We can probably get a lot of information about life by studying death, says Noble. Legend has it that in 1938, a radio broadcast about a Martian invasion of New Jersey incited panic. Not everyone realised it was a fictional drama. Orson Welles' adaptation of The War of the Worlds. Nowadays people might regard the notion of Martians taking over our planet as pure fantasy. But Steve Benner, a level-headed scientist of some repute, suggests that perhaps the invasion already occurred billions of years ago. Maybe Martians are not merely among us. Maybe they are us. Are we all Martians? From the discovermagazine.com website by Steve Nardis. Benner, a Harvard-trained chemist who started the Foundation for Applied Molecular Evolution, an associated research institute, and two bioscience companies, wasn't trying to be provocative when he presented the idea at a geochemistry conference last August. As a long-time investigator into the origins of life, he's seen multiple lines of scientific evidence starting to stack up. Microscopic life, he says, might have first taken hold on Mars and then caught a ride on a space rock to our planet where things evolved from there, so to speak. It's not as crazy as it sounds. To begin thinking about this, scientists first need to figure out how a genetic molecule capable of jump-starting life might spontaneously arise from a prebiotic soup of organic compounds. An obvious candidate, DNA, hides in the cells of every known living organism and is endowed with the ability to encode genetic information and make copies of itself. But many researchers in the primordial biology game, Benner included, focus instead on RNA, or ribonucleic acid, a biological precursor to DNA that can also store genetic information and self-replicate but arises more easily from organic materials. In his lab, Benner has already reproduced the chemical steps that culminate in the creation of RNA. He found some of the key challenges that RNA would have to overcome to occur naturally. Two obstacles that suggest Mars was the more likely spot for life to originate. First is the so-called water paradox. Around 4 billion years ago, our planet was inundated with water, many geologists have concluded. That's problematic because water corrodes RNA, literally making it fall apart. Mars, on the other hand, was significantly drier and more hospitable to RNA. Next you have to deal with the tar paradox, as Benner puts it. If you take organic material and give it energy, it does not form life. It forms something more like asphalt or tar, he says. Heating table sugar or sucrose, an organic compound, for example, turns it a sticky brown. Similarly, if you leave a pot of chicken gumbo on the stove too long, you'll end up with a charred mess. In 2003, Benner began working to coax ribose, a form of sugar comprising the R in RNA, to emerge from the proverbial pot rather than devolved tar, asphalt or some other blackened goo. He found a possible answer in Silly Putty, of all things. The malleable compound contains borate, a substance that seemed to protect organic compounds like ribose from going the way of caramelised sugar. But by 2011, Benner says, despondency set in when subsequent experiments indicated that it was not ribose the borate was stabilising, but another similar sugar. Luckily, Bennett's team made a breakthrough in 2013, discovering that a catalyst called molybdate, a form of molybdenum that includes oxygen, can reconfigure the other sugar's atoms to convert it into ribose. But if oceans covered the Earth during its early history, borate and molybdate would have been too diluted to help make RNA. Again, Mars's drier environment, which is known to contain these minerals, proves the better bet for life's beginning. Of course, in the long run, Earth has proved to be a much better place for sustaining life and allowing evolution to run its course. Unlike Mars, Benner says, Earth has kept its magnetic field, which has enabled it in turn to retain its atmosphere and oceans. The magnetic field also shields Earth's inhabitants from harmful solar radiation. If our microscopic ancestors had stayed put on Mars, there might not have been much of a tale to tell. What might seem like the greatest obstacle at first, getting from Mars to Earth is really no huge challenge. Given that volcanic eruptions and meteorite collisions routinely send chunks of Mars flying off the planet, a small fraction of these fragments make their way to our world within about nine months. On average, About a kilogram of Mars lands on Earth every day, says Benner. Chris McKay, a planetary scientist at the NASA Ames Research Centre, believes that Benner has bolstered the case for a Martian origin of Earth life. And he points out the next crucial step. Before it can be considered anything more than speculation, we need to find life on Mars and determine its relationship, if any, with life on Earth. That could take a while, McKay says, because the Curiosity rover, which is currently scouring the Red Planet for evidence of habitability, isn't so great at searching for life. And the next two planned missions, NASA's InSight lander scheduled for a 2016 launch and the agency's next rover mission in 2020, probably won't do much better. And if we never find a life on Mars at all, that would weaken the idea, says McKay. But it's hard to show that there was never life on Mars. It's hard to prove a negative, he adds. In the meantime, as you gaze in the mirror, adjusting your hair or noticing a new freckle, consider the increasingly likely possibility that the strange creature peering back at you is, in fact, a Martian. And try not to panic. from the Guardian.com website. Jesus' wife papyrus is probably a fake, say experts. A Harvard professor who caused a huge splash when she unveiled a small fragment of papyrus that she said referred to Jesus being married, now says it's likely to be a forgery. Harvard Divinity School professor Karen King revealed the piece of papyrus in Rome in 2012. The fragment written in Coptic included the phrase, Jesus said to them, My wife. Right from the beginning it sparked controversy and debate among scholars. Doubts about its authenticity emerged almost immediately. King said it is more likely than not that the fragment is a modern forgery. She cited an investigative article published last week on the website of the Atlantic magazine that raised questions about the owner of the papyrus, Florida businessman Walter Fritz. The Atlantic also was the first to report her concession that the papyrus is likely to be a fake. If you ask me today which direction I am leaning more towards, ancient text or a modern forgery, based on this new evidence I am leaning towards modern forgery, King told Associated Press. The Atlantic found inconsistencies in Fritz's story about how he came to acquire the papyrus and in a document he gave to King purporting to authenticate it. This evidence does make a difference in judging whether it was a forgery or not, and it pushes the evidence towards it being a forgery, King said. A valid telephone number could not be found for Fritz. In an email sent to the Associated Press on Monday, Fritz included a letter he sent to the Atlantic in which he denied forging, altering or manipulating the papyrus or its inscriptions. Mark Goodacre, a professor of religious studies at Duke University in North Carolina, says doubts about the fragment were raised within hours of King exhibiting the text at a conference room in Rome. When you show something like that to people who spend their entire lives staring at these things, a lot of them could straight away tell there was something fishy about it, Goodacre said. He credits King with having a lot of guts to acknowledge that she could have been duped. King said she has always maintained that the fragment wasn't evidence about whether or not Jesus was married. It's at most a part of the early Christian story about should Christians marry and so on and so forth, she said. She added that she is not happy about being lied to, but felt oddly relieved after reading the Atlantic article. I think having the truth is always kind of centering, she says. David Hempton, Dean of Harvard Divinity School, said in a statement that its mission is to pursue truth through scholarship, investigation and vigorous debate. The school is grateful to the many scholars, scientists, technicians and journalists who have devoted their expertise to understanding the background and meaning of the papyrus fragment, Hempton said. So from this story, let's take a little step backwards. Some of you might find this a little bit confronting, this story, but I've never been one to step back from a little bit of controversy. If you've ever seen some of my Facebook posts, you'll know what I mean. From the ancientorigins.net website, an article by Mark Pinkham. The truth behind the Christ myth... Ancient Origins of the Often Used Legend. What is the origin of the legend of the Christed Son, who was born of a virgin on December 25th? I am sure you are familiar with his legend, which states that he was born in a manger surrounded by shepherds and then grew up to be one with his Father in heaven. And most certainly you'll recall the sequence of events when this Christed Son gathered together his important disciples before enduring his death by torture and his subsequent resurrection. And finally, there is the scene at the end of his time on earth when he prophesied his return and then ascended into heaven. Now, for my question to you, who amongst you is mumbling under his or her breath, This can only be the legend of the Christian's Jesus Christ. Well, to the rest of you, I would like to inform you that many years before the birth of Jesus, a legend identical to his was the accepted life story of the Persian son of God, Mithras. And before Mithras, a very similar legend was ascribed to various other sons of God worldwide, including the Greek Dionysus, the Egyptian Osiris, the Sumerian Damuzi, and the Hindu Murugan. In fact, if we keep going back in time many thousands of years earlier, we will discover that this universal legend actually began with the green man, the son of a virgin goddess who was born, died, and finally resurrected each and every year. So, how did this oft used legend eventually become chosen to be the legend of Jesus? Let us begin when it was the life story of the ancient Green Man and work forward to the time of the Christian Son of God. During the Neolithic Age, which was the era when, as some say, God was a woman, the Goddess and her son, the Green Man, were venerated by people worldwide for annually bringing forth the Earth's material abundance. A universal legend about them arose that began with the annual impregnation of the virgin earth goddess by the sun, the Father in heaven, and the subsequent birth of her son, the Green Man. This important event occurred annually at the time of the winter solstice, when the spirit of the Green Man that had been slumbering underground in the underworld was shaken back to life. But although his dormant spirit had been stirred, it was not yet fully awake. This did not occur until a few days later, on December 25th, when the Sun or Solar Spirit completely reversed its downward path and took measurable steps along a northerly route. This was an important, as above, so below event. It was believed the renewed and revitalized solar spirit above in the heavens had reawakened and revitalized the spirit of his son below and inside the earth. And now the future green man could begin his annual gestation period within the womb of his mother, the virginal earth, in anticipation of receiving a new resurrected body in the spring. The legend of the goddess and the green man then skips to the vernal equinox, when the green man is ready to finally emerge from the womb of his mother. This is the time when the male light equals the female darkness, and their male-female polarity fully unites to produce a fresh infusion of life force to cover and fertilise the land. The foetal body of the green man is now ready to push out of the womb of his mother earth in the form of the new tender sprouts of spring. Soon his annual resurrection will be complete. This will occur on or around the same day as our Easter, a modern holiday associated with the much more recent resurrection of another son of a virgin. The legend of the green man then covers the hot summer months, when the sun rapidly matures as the rapidly maturing vegetative growth of nature. He matures so fast, in fact, that the green man not only becomes one with his father in heaven, but he even mates with and inseminates his own mother. Their cohabitation produces a second infusion of the fructifying life force on earth and manifests as a second proliferation of vegetation and accompanying harvest. Ultimately, this event would serve to hasten the green man's demise, and soon he would die again with the decaying vegetation and the falling leaves of autumn. The cause of his death? The sacerdotal interpreters of his legend would later assert that it occurred because of the sins of humanity. It was believed through original sin, humanity had given up not only its own right, but the right of all life on earth to achieve eternal life. At the close of the Neolithic age, when civilizations arose in place of a purely agrarian culture, the ancient legend of the goddess and green man expanded and took on religious overtones. It became a standard myth that was annually recited and dramatically staged in temples and the mystery schools of the new fledgling cities, nations and empires. A feature of its evolving storyline was that the green man now took on the additional role of king of the world, which he governed under the authority of his earth mother. And in some renditions of the legend, the son was said to have met his death in the fall at the hands of his unscrupulous brother, or a dark evil lord. In the cities of Mesopotamia, the Neolithic legend transformed into the story of the goddess as Inanna or Ishtar, who annually gave birth to a green man's son and future king under the name of Damuzi or Tammuz. It was said that Damuzi Tammuz grew up to mate with his own mother while also governing the earth for her. In order that this ancient legend be reflected in their culture, the inhabitants of the Fertile Crescent enthroned rulers of their city-states who were acknowledged to be embodiments of Demuzi tammuz and the royal servants of the goddess Inanna-Ishtar. This was also true in Egypt, where the ruling pharaohs were regarded to be incarnations of Horus, the son of goddess Isis, and governed under her authority. But in the land of Kemet, Although the spirit of the incumbent pharaoh was Horus, his physical body was formed by Seth, the god who governed the crystallization of energy into physical flesh. Together Horus and Seth as the twins created and comprised the physical body of the pharaoh, thus making the Egyptian monarch's modern representative of the first and greatest king, Green Man Osiris. Like the ancient green man, Osiris was similarly said to die and become resurrected annually in concert with the life and death of nature's vegetation. Osiris's annual resurrection ceremony took place during the annual flood of the Nile River, when the first tender sprouts of nature initially stuck their fragile heads above the surface of the earth. Semele and Dionysus one version of Osiris's popular Egyptian myth had made him annually murdered by his jealous and evil brother Seth each fall. This event was reflected in the legend of Osiris' counterpart in Greece, Green Man Dionysus, who was annually slain by his relatives, the evil Titans, but later resurrected. Similar to Green Man Osiris, the mother of Dionysus was an earth goddess named Semele, meaning Earth, and his father was Zeus, the father in heaven. In order to awaken Dionysus from his slumber at the time of the winter solstice, female representatives of the goddess would loudly bang pots and pans as they danced their way in ritual procession to the snowy summit of Mount Parnassus. And then after receiving his new set of clothes at the following spring equinox, the divine son would cavort in nature, along with his own reflection and alter ego pan, a name meaning the all, as in all of nature. Like Osiris, Dionysus became the king of the world, and like his Egyptian counterpart, Dionysus was reputed to have once completely covered the globe while teaching his diverse subjects the art of making and ritually consuming wine. Wine made from grapes was recognised as the blood of nature, and since Dionysus was all of nature, it was his blood. Thus began the ritual of a holy communion, through consuming the body and blood of the Divine Son. When the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great arrived in India, he was surrounded by an abundance of rituals and venerated effigies of a Divine Son that reminded him of his beloved Dionysus. These reminders were so prevalent that Alexander and his men were finally compelled to exclaim, We know your divine son. He is also ours. We call him Dionysus. In fact, so close was the Hindu divine son to Dionysus that a story arose that the Greek son had himself either been born in India or spent much of his early upbringing there before going to Greece. A town named Nyssa which is the same name as Dionysus's birth town in the West was subsequently discovered in India, and the divine son of the Greeks and Hindus became synonymous. The name Dionysus denotes the god of Nissa, similar to his counterpart, the forever young and effeminate Dionysus. The Hindu's divine son was the prepubescent Murugan, meaning the beautiful. His other names included Sanat Kumara and Kartikeya, a title denoting son of the Pleiades. Both the Greek Dionysus and the Hindu Kartikeya were intimately associated with the seven sisters, who during their infancy manifested physically as their nursemaids. And like Dionysus, Kartikeya Murugan had been born from the earth mother, the Hindu Shakti, meaning energy, through mating with the invisible father in heaven, Shiva. Both Dionysus and Morrigan became monarchs of the earth, but they were also recognised as the greatest of warriors, who carried and fought with versions of their favoured weapon, the spear. Dionysus carried the Thrysis spear, and Morrigan met his opponents on the battlefield with his Vell spear. Both Dionysus and Murugan eventually became the commanders of great armies of righteous soldiers that fought for Zeus and Shiva, the Father in Heaven. While Alexander and his men were linking Kartikeya and Dionysus, the counterpart of these two divine sons was being venerated in both India and then Persia. This was the Christed son, Mitra. The name Mitra denotes friendship, contracts mediation, and balance. It refers to the balance that is created through the union of the universal male-female polarity. Like Kartikeya and Dionysus, Mitra was a product of the universal polarity. His mother was of the earth, and his solar father in heaven was known by the name Ahura Mazda, Both Murugan and Mitra explicitly displayed their solar heritage through their distinctive solar flags, as well as by counting the colourful cock as their most sacred animal. Recognised worldwide as the quintessential solar animal, the croc crows daily to ensure the rising of the morning sun. Mitra was eventually taken west by the Persians, and then became known as Mithras, the beloved monarch-warrior-general of the Roman legions. Mitra, as Mithras, became identified as the spirit embodied by the many Roman emperors who sat upon the throne of the world while proclaiming themselves to be its universal king. By another name, Mithras was Sol Invictus, an epithet synonymous with the solar father in heaven, In order to honour his beloved Mithras, the Emperor Charlemagne chose his day of Sunday, the day of the sun, to be the holiest day of the week. Now it is time to draw in the legend of Jesus, believed to be the Christian Son of God, who remains today one of the last incarnations of the ancient green man. His rise to fame began at the height of Mithras' popularity when a future Roman soldier named Saul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, the great bastion of Mithras' worship in the Middle East. From a young age, Saul, or Paul, was indoctrinated into the mysteries of Mithras by the Roman soldiers, whom he daily served as their tent maker. While growing up in Tarsus, Paul learned from these soldiers that Mithras had been born in a manger to a virgin on December 25th that he was surrounded by shepherds. He learned that Mithras was one with Ahura Mazda, the father in heaven, and had arrived on earth to do his father's work. And he was informed that after a prolonged battle with Araman, the evil one, Mithras gathered together twelve devotees for a last supper, during which a communion of wine and bread, representing his blood and body, were consumed by all those present. Mithras died soon after this event, but then he arose from the dead three days later. Then, while preparing for his ascension, Mithras prophesied his return at the end of time for one last battle against Ahriman. When Paul was old enough, he was sent to Jerusalem with other Roman soldiers to guard some of the Jewish temples in the city. According to the early Christian historian Epiphanius, Paul was not a Jew when he subsequently arrived in Jerusalem, but converted to the faith after falling in love with the daughter of a Jewish priest and seeking her hand in marriage. When his proposal was subsequently rejected, Paul took out his rage on many Jews, including the Ebionites, the poor ones, a Jewish sect that championed the life story of a recently deceased Jewish holy man named Jeshua ben Joseph. When Paul learned the entire legend, he soon began to associate Jeshua with the Persian sun. His suspicions of their special link grew stronger when he remembered a Persian prophecy that Mithras would return to earth at the end of time for one last battle with Araman, According to the temple priests of Jerusalem, the world was at the end of the age of Ares and the end of times had indeed arrived so it made perfect sense that Mithras would have incarnated as Cheshua. The most convincing event that influences Paul's thinking was yet to come, however. This occurred during his journey to Damascus, when the Roman soldier was blinded by an overwhelming light and thrown off his horse. As an inveterate lover of Mithras, Paul would have instantly associated the intense light as being a manifestation of his beloved solar deity. And then, when a voice emerged from the light calling itself Jeshua, and imploring him not to persecute his followers any more, Paul knew for certain that Mithras must indeed be synonymous with Jeshua. When Paul retired from military service soon afterwards, he travelled through the Middle East in order to alert the Gentiles of his discovery, that the world's saviour has come and gone and in the process of his travels, he created the new religion of Christianity. Within this new faith, Mithras was fully assimilated into Jesus, who then wielded the life story, titles and characteristics once solely ascribed to the ancient Persian son. His new titles included One with the Father and the One and the Only Son of God. Thanks to St. Paul and his Christ myth, the ancient green man received a new set of clothes. As Jesus, the ancient green man, could now begin his tenure as one of the most adored religious figures the world has ever known. And if you visit the show notes at origins.info, click on the link to episode 132 in the Mysteries Abound podcast show notes, and then on the link to this article, you'll not only get the full text, but there are also a number of great photographs and paintings and drawings associated with it. From a website that's rapidly becoming one of my favourites, theatlasobscura.com, an article by Ernie Smith, The Strange History of Microfilm, which will be with us for centuries. Do me a favour while you read these opening lines. Pick up your phone and open up your Photos app. Scroll through the many pictures of you, your friends and your crazy family. Pick a photo. It can be any photo, really. Blow it up so it fills the whole screen. Still with me? Good. Now tell me, how would you recreate this experience using physical devices alone? Where you flipped through thousands of tiny images and blew up a really big one to a size where you can actually read it without, and here's the key part, destroying the original. The answer is a tool. That you'd be more likely to find in a library than in your pocket. That tool is Microfish, the plasticky film used to archive old print content, and it has a surprisingly diverse history. One that starts with a guy named John Benjamin Dancer. In 1839 Dancer, whose father owned an optical goods firm, combined his family's chosen trade with the then-new daguerreotype process of photography and started tinkering. Playing around, he figured out a way to shrink pictures of large objects by a ratio of 160 to 1, and as a result, created the first piece of microfilm. To clarify terms, microfilm is usually distributed in roll form, like you would pull out of a 35mm camera, while microfish is flat. Dancer's experiments also led to an early example of photomicrography – the process of expanding an image of something small to a large size – when he created a 6-inch daguerreotype of a flea. But while Dancer may have put in the foundational work, it was René Dagron who put out a patent on it in 1859. Among other things, the Frenchman made significant improvements to the technology and standardised the process. But there was still just one problem. Like graphene in the modern age, the technology was a major innovation in need of a use. Fortunately, Dagron found one during the Franco-Prussian War, a period that necessitated the transfer of information from outside of Paris back in. Being that electronic telecommunications were still in their infancy at this point, carrier pigeons were in wide use with such pigeons being dropped out of hot air balloons outside of the city, with the assumption that they would eventually fly back in. Of course, there's only so much information that you can put on a sheet of paper that's light enough for a carrier pigeon to carry. And so de Grand recommended to the French postmaster general Germain Rapport-Lechin that they use his then novel technique. De Grand would create tiny microfilmed photographs of documents, then put them inside tiny tubes attached to the carrier pigeon's wings. Since the images were visible with the use of a magic lantern, an early form of film projector, this allowed for the discreet distribution of messages to and from the battlefield. The strategy nearly failed, however, when de and his team were nearly caught attempting to leave Paris by balloons. Their balloons were shot out of the sky and his team almost captured by Prussian forces with their equipment lost in the shuffle. Eventually though they made it to the city of Tours where a chemist Charles Batterswell had already attempted to send tiny photographs with carrier pigeons. There de was able to make tiny prints that were so small 11 millimetres by 6 millimetres that a single carrier pigeon could carry up to 20 sheets a massive upgrade from Batterswell's technique. Lagren's technique was successful. More than 150 tiny sheets of microfilm were brought into Paris using it. But the Prussians soon caught on and tried to take the birds down. The Times, in an 1870 report, explained exactly how. It is said that the pigeon post is gone off, with sheets of photographed messages reduced to an invisible size, and which in Paris are to be magnified, written out and transmitted to their addresses. They are limited to private affairs, politics and news of military operations being strictly excluded. But the Prussians, it is said, with their usual diabolical cunning and ingenuity, have set hawks and falcons flying around Paris to strike down the feathered messengers that bear under their wings, healing for anxious souls. Carrier pigeons, in other words, did not have an easy job. More than three decades later, libraries began to catch on, thanks in part to a couple of Belgians, who in 1906 made the first argument that microfilm could be used to help save space. Information scientist Paul Otlet and his colleague Robert Goldschmidt's paper sur une forme nouvelle de livre, le livre microphotographique, did not immediately set the microfish world ablaze. Even after the duo showed off a Steve Jobs-style demo of the technique at the American Library Institute's annual meeting in 1913. But by the 1930s, Publications such as the New York Times and libraries such as those at Harvard University began using the format as a way to preserve old newspapers. Quickly, the technology became common in libraries everywhere. These days, of course, the internet has quickly usurped microfilm and microfiche, but content-wise, there are some cases where microfiche arguably does a better job. One of those is classic comic books for three major reasons. Low quality source material. As you may or may not know, comic books were not originally published using the highest quality paper or ink and as a result have not aged well. Microfish that's decades old on the other hand holds up pretty darn well. High cost of original copies. Old comic books are incredibly valuable and as a result are out of financial reach for most people. And that includes libraries as well. The library at Michigan State University has a comic book collection with more than 80,000 entries. But it is no longer purchasing original copies due to the fragility and great expense of most of these items. Instead, it's buying microfilm which can be recreated at will. General snobbishness. The New York Public Library has a wide collection of comic books on microfilm, but the reason much of that collection has been archived in that form wasn't out of a desire to protect it, but because comics were once deemed unfit for a library. That's because the library's original policy was to microfilm the comic books, then get rid of them. Considering that comic books gave Microfish a little extra life, it makes sense then that there's a comic book about Eugene B. Power. Power is the guy who founded University Microfilms International, the company that bought Microfish to libraries around the country in 1938. Power's company is still going strong. You may not know UMI, but if you've stepped into a library sometimes in the last decade you've most assuredly heard of ProQuest which makes some of the most widely used library research technologies. Microfish isn't perfect. Compared to the scrolling you do on your phone, it has a clunky interface that requires a lot of scrolling before you can reach the exact page you're looking for. There are other problems too. It doesn't capture the level of detail of a high resolution photo you might see online. It does text justice, but you can't say the same for photographs, which are often grayscale at best. And the projectors themselves that you might remember from your library days, which generally predicted the basic shape and format of desktop computers, are hard to find, let alone purchase. But here's the secret with microfilm that will ensure its existence for generations to come. It's designed to last for hundreds of years far longer than any hard drive or CD-ROM ever will. In a couple of hundred years, when people are trying to write the history books about our culture, they're probably going to run into a lot of 404 errors, as I did when I was trying to find the link in the previous paragraph. But you know what they'll be able to read crystal clear without any issues? Microfilm and microfiche just as Paul Otlet and John Benjamin Dancer and René D'Agron and other bunch of experimenters might have realised back in the day. and from the sciencealert.com website, an article by Fiona MacDonald. A strange low-pitched sound is coming from the Caribbean Sea, and scientists have never heard anything like it. The ocean's a noisy place, but under the regular din of marine life and ship traffic, scientists have detected a strange, much louder sound coming from the Caribbean Sea. It's too low to be heard by human ears, but the whistle-like noise is so powerful that researchers have been able to pick up its signature from space. And it's like nothing they've ever heard before. The sound was detected while researchers were analysing the sea level and pressure in the region over the past 60 years in an attempt to predict what could happen in the future. Their interest comes from the fact that the Caribbean Sea is an incredibly important part of the global circulation belt, responsible for forming currents that feed into the Gulf Stream. And if we want to understand how our climate's going to change in the future – we need to better understand how hot and cold water moves around the planet. So scientists from the University of Liverpool in the UK were looking at four different models of ocean activity to try and figure out some of the ocean dynamics in the region. But pretty quickly, they realised something strange was going on. Their models kept showing pressure oscillations across the Caribbean basin that just didn't seem to add up. We were looking at ocean pressure through models for quite different reasons and this region just didn't work, one of the researchers Chris Hughes told Gizmodo. It felt like a sore thumb. To see if the strange phenomenon was actually real, they checked water levels and pressure readings taken from the bottom of the Caribbean Sea between 1958 and 2013, and also looked at readings from tide gauges and satellite measurements of gravity in the area. It turns out the strange pressure oscillations were happening in real life as well as in the models, producing a low noise that can be best described as a whistle. And what I played at the beginning of this section was the pitched up version of the sound so that we can hear it. It might not sound like much, but it's so powerful the effects can be measured in space through oscillations in the Earth's gravity field. So what's going on here? The sound is being caused by a large wave, known as the Rossby wave, which travels westwards across the ocean and has been seen to disappear when it hits the west of the Caribbean basin before appearing 120 days later on its eastern edge. That disappearance was picked up a few years ago and labelled the Rossby wormhole. But now researchers have discovered that the wave is still interacting profoundly with the sea floor in the sea, causing it to whistle. We can compare the ocean activity in the Caribbean Sea to that of a whistle, explains Hughes. When you blow into a whistle, the jet of air becomes unstable and excites the resonant sound wave which fits into the whistle cavity. Because the whistle is open, the sound radiates out so you can hear it. Similarly, An ocean current flowing through the Caribbean Sea becomes unstable and excites a resonance of a rather strange kind of ocean wave called a Rossby wave. Because the Caribbean Sea is partly open, this causes an exchange of water with the rest of the ocean which allows us to hear the resonance using gravity measurements, he added. But because the Caribbean Sea is so much bigger than a regular whistle, it causes the sound to be much lower than we can hear. As Stone explains, it takes 120 days for waves to propagate east and west in the basin, yielding an A-flat tone that's roughly 30 octaves below the bottom of a piano. The researchers have now labelled the phenomenon the Rossby Whistle and have published the results in geophysical research letters. Understanding how it works is pretty important to figuring out how the oceans in that part of the world will respond to climate change variations in the future. This phenomenon can vary sea level by as much as 10 centimetres along the Colombian and Venezuelan coast, so understanding it can help predict the likelihood of coastal flooding, says Hughes. The researchers also predict that the Rossby whistle might have an impact on the entire North Atlantic by regulating the flow in the Caribbean current, which is the precursor to the Gulf Stream. They're now planning to investigate the phenomenon further to better understand how it affects Ocean Dynamics. From the ferrocemente.com website, a seven foot tall hellhound skeleton unearthed near an ancient monastery in the UK. Known according to ancient texts as Black Shuck, a name believed to originate from an Old English word which means black demon. The seven-foot-tall beast appeared as a bringer of death in many ancient tales over 500 years ago. During the 16th century, black shuck was feared by the inhabitants of a modern-day UK due to the number of brutal deaths committed by a giant hellhound with reddish-burning eyes. Now over 500 years after legends talked about the hellhound, Archaeologists seem to have discovered the remains of the Black Shuck in the ruins of Lyston Abbey in Suffolk, in a nameless grave 30 inches deep among several pieces of pottery surrounding the body. According to initial calculations, the remains belong to a male dog standing at least seven feet in height, weighing around 200 pounds. Is it possible that these remains belong to the legendary terror bringer that caused havoc among the population of East Anglia? The story of Black Shuck has to have originated from somewhere, and who knows, it could have originated from the dog which was buried here. Brenton Wilkins, project director of Dig Ventures, says. It's still an enigma why the remains of the feared Black Shuck rest under holy ground, despite all of the atrocities the monster dog had committed in the past. Local folklore states that the Black Shuck made its presence during a brutal storm on August the 4th, 1577, at Holy Trinity Church in Blythburg, almost seven miles from Lyston in Suffolk. The fearful villagers found shelter inside the church, but despite the massive wooden doors guarding the church, the black shuck managed to enter. According to Reverend Abraham Fleming's book, A Strange and Terrible Wonder, This black dog, or the devil in such a likeness, God he knoweth all who worketh all running all along down the body of the church with great swiftness, an incredible haste among the people, in a visible form and shape, passed between two persons as they were kneeling upon their knees, and occupied in prayer as it seemed, wrung the necks of them both at one instant, clean backward, and in so much that even at a moment where they kneeled, they strangely died. Radiocarbon testing seems to indicate that the remains of the beast correspond to the time when the black shuck was terrorising the population of East Anglia. It seems that not all legends are just legends, and despite many who believe that mythology is far from reality, this time science has proven it is not. The only question that remains is what else is considered as a mythology when in fact it is the ultimate reality. And if you visit the show notes, there is a photograph of the remains of the dog. Although it's a little hard to tell how big it is, but the skeleton certainly does look large. As I work in a botanic gardens here in Brisbane and often visit other botanic gardens in my travels in Australia and other parts of the world, I often find stories about interesting and unusual gardens worth a look. And I thought this one might be interesting to share with my listeners. Step inside the world's most dangerous garden, if you dare. The Poison Garden at England's Alnick Garden is beautiful and filled with plants that can kill you. By Natasha Geiling, And it's from the smithsonian.com website, just in case you were wondering. The Alnick Garden is one of North England's most beautiful attractions, where acres of colourful plants invite visitors to wander through rows of fragrant roses manicured toperies and cascading fountains. But within Alnick's boundaries, kept behind black iron gates, is a place where visitors are explicitly told not to stop and smell the flowers. The Poison Garden, home to 100 infamous killers. In 1995, Jane Percy became the Duchess of Northumberland, a county in northeastern England that stretches to the border with Scotland after her husband's brother died unexpectedly. With the title came the Alnwick Castle, the traditional seat of the Duke of Northumberland. It also serves as the setting for Hogwarts in the first two Harry Potter films. After the family took up residence in the castle, Percy's husband asked her to do something with the gardens, which at the time were a disused commercial forestry boasting nothing more than rows and rows of Christmas trees. I think he thought, that'll keep her quiet. She'll just plant a few roses and that'll be it, the Duchess says. But Percy did more than plant a few roses. In 1996, she hired a Jacques Wirtz, a landscaped architect, who had worked with the Tuileries in Paris and the gardens of the French President's Residence to help reimagine the Alnwick Garden. Today the gardens encompass 14 acres and attract over 600,000 visitors each year, making them one of North England's most popular tourist attractions. I realised if I could do something really great, if I had the right team, says the Duchess, But she knew she needed more than a good team. She needed something to set her project apart from the other gardens that dot the English countryside. If you're building something, especially a visitor attraction, it needs to be something really unique, she says. One of the things I hate in this day and age is the standardisation of everything. I thought, let's try and do something really different. The Duchess thought she might want to include an apothecary garden, but a trip to Italy set her on a slightly different course. After visiting the infamous Medici poison garden, the Duchess became enthralled with the idea of creating a garden of plants that could kill instead of heal. Another trip, this one to the archaeological site of the largest hospital in medieval Scotland, where the Duchess learned about sporific sponges soaked in henbane, opium and hemlock used to anaesthetise amputees during 15th century surgeries, reinforced her interest in creating a garden of lethal plants. I thought, this is a way to interest children, she says. Children don't care that aspirin comes from the bark of a tree. What's really interesting is to know how a plant kills you, and how the patient dies, and what you feel like before you die. So the Duchess set about collecting poisonous plants for her envisioned poison garden. While selecting the 100 varieties that would eventually take root there, she had only one steadfast requirement. The plants had to tell a good story. This meant that exotic killers like South America's brugmansia would mingle with more common poisons, such as laurel hedges. Hmm, brugmansia. we actually have those in our botanic gardens here in Brisbane. They're beautiful plants, long trumpets. Hmm, don't play with them if you see them though. Anyway, back to the story. What's extraordinary about the plants is that it's the most common ones that people don't know are killers, the Duchess says. Visitors are often surprised to learn that the laurel hedge, nearly ubiquitous in English gardens, can be highly toxic. But some visitors have had experience with laurels sinister side. The Duchess has heard a few folk talk about how after loading up their cars with pruned laurel leaves to take to the dump, Drivers have fallen asleep behind the wheel of their car from the toxic fumes the branches emit. Because of the plants' dangerous qualities, visitors to the poison garden are prohibited from smelling, touching or tasting any of them. Still, even with guidelines in place, visitors can fall victim to the plants. This past summer, seven people reportedly fainted from inhaling toxic fumes while walking through the garden. People think we're being overdramatic when we talk about not smelling the plants, but I've seen the health and safety reports, the Duchess says. As part of the Poison Garden's educational mission, the Duchess grows a variety of drugs from cannabis to cocaine, which she and garden guides use as a jumping off point for drug education. It's a way of educating children without having them realise they're being educated, she says. Other poisonous plants might be well less known to visitors, but are no less potent. One of the Duchess's favourite plants is the Brugmansia, or Angel's trumpet, a member of the solanaceae family, which includes deadly nightshade, that grows in the wild in South America. It's an amazing aphrodisiac, before it kills you, she says explaining that Victorian ladies would often keep a flower from the plant on their card tables and add small amounts of its pollen to their tea to incite an LSD-like trip. Angel's trumpet is an amazing way to die because it's quite pain-free, the Duchess says. A great killer is usually an incredible aphrodisiac. Whether a plant kills with pleasure or with pain... Visitors can count on walking away from the poison garden with an entertaining anecdote. Most plants that kill are quite interesting, says the Duchess. The show notes for the Mysteries Abound podcast are kept at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. The bandwidth for our podcast is provided by the kind people at TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. And TalkShoe is spelt T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E. And it's a big thank you to these people for giving the podcast a donation since last time. Greg Taylor, John Carr, Sean Yarnell, Paul Collins, Susan Lewis, revolutionite.com and Scott McClory, your help is greatly appreciated. Now I recently had a request from one of our friends, Marie Thompson, about a friend of hers who's very, very unwell on her third treatment for cancer and is finding the expense of the whole process extremely daunting with her health insurance not providing funds anymore. So a GoFundMe campaign has been set up for this person. I said I'd advertise it because I think it's a good cause. So if you think you can help Marie and her friend, just visit the show notes and I have put a link to the campaign there. I looked at the campaign and read the short biography that's been put up there about Marie's friend and I think it's a good cause, so I am very delighted to promote it with the podcast. If you think you can help out, visit the link in the show notes and... Any sort of donation, I'm sure, would be greatly appreciated by Marie's friend, who is really, really having a hard time. Anyway, that's the end of the podcast, everyone. Thank you for listening. Yes, no creepy pastor this week. I thought I'd have a bit of a change. And you might have noticed the stories didn't include much in the way of paranormal stuff either. Just, more or less, other types of mysteries. Like I said, just for a change. So keep well, everyone, and this is Paul saying bye for now.